Hello there, dear listener. Thanks for tuning in to another podcast episode of Creedle. I mentioned this to Father Blankenhorn on today's show, but this is my 100th episode of Creedle, which is very exciting. And I am very grateful to every single one of you who has listened along the way. I wanted to acknowledge that, but also say that I'm sorry that this episode is not up to my normal audio standards. I try to make these sound as easy on the ears as possible with a lot of editing and would have done the same in this in this case. I did as much as I could, but uh, there was an error with Riverside, which is the service I use to do these recordings, and I did not record a backup. So my fault on no backup and Riverside's fault on messing up the primary. So I apologize for that. Tried to make it sound as good as I could, and I think it sounds okay. You'll certainly be able to hear and understand everything that happens, but there's just a little bit more background noise and things like that than I would prefer. But thank you for your forbearance and patience, and enjoy the conversation with Father Blankenhorn. He is a brilliant, brilliant man, and I learned so much from him. Hopefully, you will as well. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. We have a really important and uh, what I'm a uh, discussion I'm looking forward to a lot today. I uh, am joined by Father Bernard Blankenhorn, whose bio I'll give you in just a moment. Uh, but I've not told Father Blankenhorn this, but this is the 100th episode of Creedle, uh, and I thought, what better way to commemorate 100 episodes than talking about the source and the summit of the Christian life? That is the Eucharist, uh, in which uh, our Lord Jesus Christ makes Himself truly present to us. So, Father Blankenhorn, welcome to Creedle. Thank you, Zach. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Yes, I'm really excited to have you on because I've read your book, Bread from Heaven, an introduction to the theology of the Eucharist. It is very, very good. I highly recommend it to all my listeners, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, to my listeners, I want to give you an overview of who Father Blankenhorn is. I just had the pleasure of chatting with him for five minutes before we hit the record button. Uh, and uh, he told me that he's uh, a West Coast Dominican from California, so he's in the Order of Preachers. But he now finds himself at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland, where he is a professor of uh, dogmatic theology. Prior to that was at the Angelicum in Rome, where he was a professor of theology and also the uh, associate director of the Thomistic Institute there, which is just doing fantastic work. And I highly encourage you to follow all of the Thomistic Institute's um, social media followings where you can hear wonderful lectures on, on theology and all sorts of things. He's also written about the Dionysian mysticism of Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and most recently, of course, this book, Bread from Heaven, an introduction to the theology of the Eucharist. Lots of stuff to unpack here, obviously, Father. I mean, your book, I think it's probably fair to say, scratches the surface, and it does so in 300 pages, right? There's so so much richness to the theology of the Eucharist, but I think you've done a, a very capable job unpacking a lot of it uh, in this book. It, it is scratching the surface. It's it's almost intimidating to write it. it. It's the fruit of my teaching at the Angelicum over the years. and when you teach the Eucharist, especially to very fervent young Catholics, especially seminarians and religious, uh, to sisters and brothers, you you can be a bit scared at times, intimidated in a very positive way, because you start to um, dive into these sources from antiquity forward, mm -hmm. and you realize that you're a fish swimming in an ocean, yeah. and you can't drink all of the water uh, so you need the, the help of wise colleagues and friends to, to select well. And so what you have in the book is the fruit of a few years of, of uh, reflection on that, where I've tried to, to select at times the best that I could find on the key issues on the, on the Eucharist in a way that's still accessible to, to the, the undergraduate and graduate students that one would typically have in not just a pontifical university, but a, mm -hmm. a seminary or a, just a Catholic university in general. Right. So. Yeah, and the, the publisher is Catholic University of America, um, if I recall correctly. And so right. hopefully it will be something that will be accessible to Catholic University students uh, across the across the world. Um, Father, you've written at least one other book that I know of because uh, on your biography here on the back of the book, it says that you're the author of The Mystery of Union with God, Dionysian Mysticism in Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, tell me more about that. What What is Dionysian mysticism? I've never heard of that. Yes, term. So, so it's the adjective form uh, that refers to Dionysius the Areopagite, who is a somewhat mythical figure. So there is a Dionysus at the Areopagus in the middle mm -hmm. of Greece in, Ro in Athens, uh, listening to St. Paul in the book of Acts mm -hmm. chapter 17. And he's one of the few 
Greek, more philosophically minded citizens who converts at Paul's preaching. So in the sixth century in Western Syria, uh, or in that region, you know, in the Middle East and on the shores of the Mediterranean or near the Mediterranean, um, a brilliant theologian took this pseudonym, this pen name. It was uh-huh. a genre at the time to write under somebody else's name. And he composed these beautiful, highly philosophical treatises of theology on the angels, on the liturgy, on the names of God, etc. And he, he was, uh, until the early modern era, was, was received by Christian readers in antiquity and the Middle Ages as this quasi-apostolic figure, right? This convert of uh, who, who came to the, church, to the faith through St. Paul himself. And so uh, the great theologians wrote a great much about his ideas, including Albert the Great, uh, 13th century Dominican, who was the great master mm-hmm. of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so That's what right, I wanted yeah. to explore was how these two Dominicans uh, interpreted his ideas on contemplation, on mm. union with God, uh, which is an area where Dionysus in both the Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine traditions and in Western Catholicism has had great influence, for example, in mm-hmm. the Carmel or in the Franciscan tradition. Um, so that was my, that was, that's a modified version of my dissertation that you're looking at, The Mystery of Union with God. I wrote it here okay. in Freiburg about 14 years ago when I was a student myself. And it's, it's a more technical, advanced work than um, Bread from Heaven. Because a dissertation sure. is written for the insiders, the specialists. Yes, yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> so I, I've had friends, even in the order, who were starting out in their studies who told me, said, Bernard, you know, I read your book. It, it gives me a headache. I like it, but it gives me a headache. Yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> Bread from Heaven is not designed to give anybody a headache, even though at times it's a little bit demanding because transubstantiation is not an easy topic, right? Right. So, but that's what the the book is, uh, the mystery of union with God. It's a technical analysis of what Saint Albert and his student Saint Thomas Aquinas understood about contemplative ascent, about spiritual perfection, uh, the contemplation that the saints enjoy. What are the the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Um, how do the names of God, the biblical names of God, play into the heart of contemplation? And then this really fed into my teaching and research over the years. And it was a very natural move for me to then mm-hmm. begin to focus on the Eucharist because that's the one most powerful means to union with God is, right. is the Eucharist. So to me, it was a it was a beautiful sort of a gift of providence to go from that to being asked to teach the Eucharist every year at the Angelicum, which then helped prepare me for, for the project of, of writing the book. Uh, on uh, the that, yeah that that sort of gets at what I was going to ask you next which is why did you write this book but it sounds like uh, you wrote it because uh, you had been teaching on it and you realized that this was something that people needed to hear is that right yeah so a few years ago there was a beautiful colloquium that the Dominicans of my province organized in in California on philosophy and theology and I was sitting at recreation this is why you go to colloquia to academic conferences it's the <laughs> right. conversations at lunchtime, it's what you say to each yeah. other over beer and cigars. You know, that's the main reason you go. So that's right. we we didn't have beer and cigars at the at the very moment, you know. But but as we're chatting, Father Thomas Joseph White, and Matthew Levering, and I, we we basically came up with the idea. I think they did uh, of starting a series of handbooks of textbooks for seminarians and young theologians uh-huh. on the basics of Catholic theology. Wow. And so this was a, this might have been in 2013, 2014, you know. And so, of course, you know, whatever Matthew Levering and Thomas Joseph White, Father Thomas Joseph, touch turns to gold, you know. Right. And, and the, the series has been born. They've published maybe seven volumes. They're and this is, this is, about, this is the Sac- Sacra Doctrina, Sacra Doctrina right? is the series. Yeah. Yeah. And at that same conversation where they gave birth to the idea of the series, they turned to me and said, what would you write, like to write about, Bernard? And I said, the Eucharist. They there said, great. All right. Um, so I had been thinking about this because, of course, when you're especially a young teacher starting out, is my first full-time teaching experience was at the in Rome at the Angelicum in, in 2012 in, in the spring, right after my doctoral studies. I was assigned there. And, uh, you know, you, you're, you're pasting, cutting and pasting together uh, a right. little reader for your students. You give them excerpts from St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. You give them the Council of Trent. You give them excerpts from a, somebody's textbook or, or the Second Vatican Council from Scripture, mm-hmm. of course, right? And you say to yourself, wow, this is difficult. How do other people 
in the world teach theology. It must be hard to just keep trying to construct because I couldn't find a, this is before Lawrence Feingold had published his book on the Mm -hmm. Eucharist. That's right. Yeah. I couldn't find a decent textbook on the Eucharist in the English language. And so I realized that there was this huge gap in the literature in academic pedagogical resources, you know? Yeah. So that's, and then when Father, not Father, uh, Mr. Doctor, Professor Feingold's uh, book came Mm -hmm. out, I found it a wonderful resource for myself and my teaching. And I realized too, that our our methods are very complementary. We we basically Mm -hmm. have the same conclusions, but we have different approaches to get there. And so I thought, okay, I'll learn from him and I'll take my approach uh, and and so I kept writing the book, and and that's the end result you have. It's it's born in the classroom, so it's born in the interaction with students, where I'm figuring out what questions are they actually asking, mm-hmm. what are their um, biggest doubts, what yeah. uh, where do they really struggle to understand, what are they hungry for. They, with their summer experiences in ministry, uh, or also when I'm doing graduate work with with young priests and advanced lay students, I'm dealing with people who currently are more in parish life, more immersed in parish life than I right. have been in that time of my life. You know, right. after my first two years of priesthood, I haven't been able to be full time in the parish again. So then I could really begin to shape this book through the experience of teaching both young. Uh, students who are starting out undergraduates and then the more mm-hmm. advanced students and and uh, really speak to to their uh, questions and and the problems that they were facing and and the issues that they could find emerging in in their catechesis and in their parish and pastoral work you know well i have to say that as you know i've i've spoken with dr feingold about his work and uh, your yours reads in a similar way and by that i mean it's evident that you both have spent a lot of time in the classroom mm-hmm. which is super helpful because you do know people's question points and sort of problem points and are able to anticipate those and address them head on um, rather than sort of getting wrapped up in an extended meditation um, that, that is sort of, uh, that remains aloof from the concerns of readers and students. So I think it's a, it's a really helpful thing. I'm looking at the um, Sacra doc, doc, you said doc, I said doctrina, I think you said doctrina. Is that the better pronunciation? Sacra doctrina. Yeah. yeah. Um, so bread from heaven is one of them. Uh, we have one on ecclesiology, the one creator God and Thomas Aquinas and contemporary theology, the godly image, John Henry Newman on truth and its counterfeits. That one sounds very interesting. Fundamental theology an introduction to, and uh, by Matthew Levering, an introduction to Vatican II as an ongoing theological event. Um, so that is the series so far. Uh, and I'm going to include a link to all of those in the show notes for listeners who are intrigued. But let's return uh, to your book, um, Father uh the, the title "Bread from Heaven" is a reference to manna in the desert. Uh, we get this in the Exodus narrative, and this prefigures um, prefigures the Eucharist. And you have an extended meditation uh, on that. Can you say a little bit, little bit more about that linkage and why start your book with that meditation? Sure. So um, I, I was raised uh, in the faith, uh, well, first through my parents, but then as a young man, I benefited a great deal from the catechesis of Scott Hahn especially his teaching on the John commentary. This is back in the, in the 90s, you know, when I was still a layman, uh, when maybe mm-hmm. some of your listeners weren't born yet. But, um, and I had a wonderful scripture teacher in the order named Father Gregory Tatum, who also taught me John. John has always been a great passion for me, John's gospel, also the letters mm-hmm. in the apocalypse. T- to me, they're the, the climax of revelation. Um, and so when I teach uh, the Eucharist or any other topic, I always want to start with scripture. It's the first mm-hmm. source of scripture, you know. And obviously, you have to also begin, you have to look at the Old Testament in an extensive way. This is one thing that, that uh, Dr. Feingold's book on the Eucharist, as well as on the sacraments, does very well. I do it somewhat. Um, I wish I could have done more, but space is limited. And yeah. But if there's a single high point of Eucharistic teaching or doctrine in scripture, for me, it's evident that it's John 6. It's the bread of life discourse of Jesus um, in the synagogue in Capernaum and uh, basically the second half of chapter 6. And the framework for that entire sermon that Jesus is giving is the image of the manna in the desert. It's on the basis of the text from, from Exodus Right? It's the, the actual event of the giving of the manna. It's also the, the references to the manna in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 78. And there's a very rich commentary on this 
toward the end of the book of wisdom, chapter 16. And, and Jesus, uh, Jesus's opponents are citing it to him and he's citing it back to them and he's giving you the ultimate teaching on it. So Jesus's most extensive teaching on the Eucharist is grounded on the manna theme. Mm. That's, now that's already a good enough reason to start your book there, right? Sure, yeah. And then as I kept studying the Eucharist and the tradition of Eucharistic theology, I began to see how many of the masters recognized the centrality of this image. Right? Because scripture is full of beautiful, crucial, essential Eucharistic images. We think of the wedding feast of the Lamb, obviously the Last Supper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Paschal sacrifice and the Paschal banquet that the Jews and the Israelites celebrate, right? All of these feed into Eucharistic doctrine. All of them are a foundation for Eucharistic teaching coming from God. But um, when you immerse yourself in the tradition, you see, yes, those have to be present, but the man is crucial. Uh, St. Augustine mm-hmm. recognized this. So one of the high points of St. Augustine's Eucharistic teaching is his tractates, his sermons on John. We talks a great deal about spiritual eating through the manna already in the desert, where people are, mm. by eating the manna in faith, are coming to life in God the, in, the, in the Exodus. And then this is picked up by the great teachers, including St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, who wrote a beautiful, very rich commentary on the whole of John's gospel. It's probably the best commentary he wrote, and it might be the best commentary on John done in the tradition uh, that I've seen. Wow. And there, the, the commentary Aquinas does on the manna and on John 6 is, is just magnificent. So I had all of these in if powerful resources. And once I saw the centrality, it was a, it was sort of a, it was a no-brainer, you know, to, to start there. Um, and then obviously, as you go, you have to integrate these other uh, images that are God's revelation, right? You have to really do a lot with the Paschal, the Paschal lamb and various Old Testament sacrifices that are preparing the way for the Eucharist. And then talk about the Last Supper, obviously. But the manna was, for me, the first pillar. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, I was also curious to know about, um, to, to hear more about your thoughts on sort of why the church has defined transubstantiation. And I asked this um, for two reasons. One, I guess it's really just one reason with sort of two sub-reasons. But the one big reason is that it, it, there's an argument to be made that defining it has been an obstacle to Christian unity. And I say that for these two reasons. One, the Orthodox really don't want it defined, uh, or at least they sort of say that now. I think there's sort of some division in the Orthodox tradition about who has used that term and when that term has been used and whether or not it actually does apply. But the second is in the Protestant tradition, obviously, it's been a major uh, sticking point and a point of departure for the Reformers and then um, for, I think, almost everyone since. Um, And the Church, contra both of those camps, says, no, we're going to define this. This is how it comes about. And you mentioned in your book the... um, the 14th century theologian Nicholas um, Casabilas, I think was his name. Cabasilas, um, yeah. Cabasilas, there we go. Yes. Uh, who, who has, I think, since been declared a saint in, in the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spoke about this, this changing uh, of the elements, and I think the, he used the Greek metabole. Um, but he refused to adopt the language of transubstantiation, even though he knew of it. You know, he, he knew that that was a dialogue happening in the church, but he said, no, we're not going to define it that way. We don't need to define it. So... Why, why is um, Cabasilas incorrect here? Why should the church define transubstantiation? Why is it good that the church has done so? Right. So uh, the, the term transubstantiation cannot be, be found in ancient Eucharistic uh, Christian literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more general, somewhat more vague references to the presence of Christ, which, by the way, is essentially universally affirmed in ancient Christianity whether it be in liturgical practice, the way the species are handled and venerated, mm-hmm. whether it be in preaching and, and catechesis. For example, uh, the sacramental catechesis of St. Ambrose of Milan has a very direct, clear um, affirmation of a corporeal presence of Christ in the sacrament. But, but this is really echoed all through antiquity. Um, antiquity did not know any Eucharistic controversies. As you know, there were many Trinitarian and Christological controversies yeah. in East and West in the ancient church in the first centuries of Christianity. In the West, there was an intense controversy in North Africa and parts of the West around salvation and grace. It's the Pelagian mm-hmm. controversy of the fifth right. century, right? Um, but uh, the Eucharist was not an issue, which in fact is extremely telling. There's a basic yeah. affirmation and belief in both 
a corporeal presence of Christ's body and blood on the altar and of a Eucharistic sacrifice. It's not a controversy. It's accepted. It's believed and practiced. There was absolutely no need to make definitions. We formulate dogmas usually to exclude errors, right? Mm -hmm. The church is right. often extremely generous in her theological discourse where she allows many different theological schools and traditions to flourish as long as they are respecting and in harmony with the, the source of scripture, the pillars of tradition, such as the councils, the constant teaching of, of the popes and councils, the common teaching of the church fathers, and what liturgical practice is either directly or indirectly teaching or implying. You know, we think of the way we venerate the Eucharistic um, the, the host, for example, right, during and after right. Mass. That would be a liturgical practice that implies a doctrine. Mm -hmm. So in the Middle Ages, in the West, but not in the East, we have the first great Eucharistic controversy starting about the 11th century with the monk Berengar. Mm -hmm. And Berengar is misreading ancient texts, especially of Augustine, and he's separating the sign or the symbol meaning the Eucharist is still uh, in its appearances, in its accidents, bread and wine. And he's separating that from the body and blood of Christ, the glorified Christ. And he's saying, well, the Eucharist is a sacrament. It can bring you life, but it doesn't contain the body and the blood. And this uh, first controversy was uh, initially met in an in inadequate, problematic way, answered with a bit clumsily because the philosophical tools avail available were still fairly limited at that time. We have a right. lack of access to ancient sources, a lack of access to Greek metaphysical texts, etc. And but then gradually, as Western theology grows and advances and has better access to to the sources of of the the treasures of pagan philosophy and to the teachings of the Church Fathers, um, that is more expanded. Then we get clear answers. And so starting in 12th century theology in the West, in the Latin language, then we begin to have uh, the description of a clearer description of transubstantiation that's dogmatized in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council in response to an error. This then becomes standard Eucharistic teaching in the 13th century. There are a lot of intense debates over the exact way the Eucharist changes. So you see, from antiquity forward, we have the affirmation that the substance of the body and blood are on the altar. Berengar refuses it. And now you say, fine, we have the substance on the altar. He's wrong. Yeah. How does it get there? Mm. And the Western theologians are looking at a new challenge. Give a little bit of a partial, a tiny little answer that says how the substance gets there to give some answer to the, 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 the natural need of man that seeks the intelligibility of God's saving and created order, right? Right. So um, the church gives brief definitions of transubstantiation to protect the mystery that there is a victim on the altar that we often sacrifice. There is a glorified body and a glorified blood that we consume in communion. To protect that mystery, you dogmatized transubstantiation in a very short way. And then the theologians have, have a go at it and give different explanations of how exactly this works out. The East to this day has not experienced that kind of doctrinal crisis and so has, right. hasn't had the need to dogmatize. Uh, and Kabasilas himself didn't, ha didn't need to. You know? His response in that sense is, quite, uh, is very understandable and natural. And if, in fact, I don't think the West demands that the East dogmatize it at all, but that the East right. not reject what what the West is doing or to claim it's erroneous. Right, right. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Um, and to my knowledge, I mean, my understanding of it is that the the East problem with it is not that it is not exactly what the Church says. In other words, the East doesn't say that it's wrong, but the East says we shouldn't have dogmatized that. We shouldn't have. We basically, we shouldn't have dogmatized Aristotelian metaphysics. Is that accurate? It's common among Eastern Orthodox voices to say that transubstantiation goes too far. Okay. Um, we, uh, but there, it gets very complicated. First, there have been in early modernity, especially, there was a flourishing in late medieval and early modern times in various parts of Eastern Orthodoxy, such as in Jerusalem in Greece, in the Ukraine, 
there have been strong movements of uh, in, in an adoption of Thomistic and scholastic theology by Byzantines. Okay. And some of these Byzantine voices, these include major bishops and patriarchs. These aren't fringe voices within Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm affirmed a transubstantiation and, and affirmed the language of the substance of the body and the blood being on the altar, right? It's true that typically today, Eastern Orthodox theologians will have recourse to other voices and someone like Kabasalas, but I think we should see Kabasalas as someone who is, like anyone, the product of his time. He's right. reacting to a question in his age in light of the challenges that his own people are facing, and he's seeing that it's not necessary to dogmatize it. Kabasalas also had a limited understanding of Western theology. So, for example, Kabasalas tried to explain the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, which was the basic mm-hmm. Eucharistic prayer that the Latins had. And right. he, he tried to explain how, in fact, the change of the gifts on the altar, which notice he's affirming, right? right. He says it right. doesn't take, take place at the consecration. It takes place with the implicit invocation of the Holy Spirit, after the consecration, when the priest puts his uh, hands over his chest like this and bows down and asks God's angel to come and take the gifts from our altar onto his heavenly altar so that we can receive the, the heavenly gifts from God the Father, right? So for Gapasalus to say this shows you he has a limited understanding of what the West is trying yeah. to do. Right. Uh, when his intention is ultimately good because Gapasalus is is looking for the way the Eucharist is present in the Latin rite. He's not condemning it, right? He's not calling us heretics. Um, There's a cultural and linguistic divide between the two worlds that's already quite vast uh, by the time he comes along in the Middle Ages. So the East, uh, and the other challenge we have to remember is the East, uh, the Eastern Orthodoxy, right? I shouldn't say the East because the East includes Byzantine Byzantine Catholics. Right. Right. Some of whom live in America, some of whom live in various parts of, of Europe or in Canada and elsewhere. So um, Eastern Orthodoxy, the churches who are not yet in full communion with Rome, does not speak with one, vo- one voice and cannot speak right. with one voice. Yeah. Eastern that's, Orthodoxy for this last yeah. millennium, the, the second millennium, has not really been able to gather in council to resolve deep doctrinal disputes. In general, there hasn't been the need because they can't agree on how to how to organize and how to run such a council, right? right. The West has yep. never lost this capacity because we have a pope. We also have a more developed understanding, I think, of doctrinal development because we've had to face it more often. We've mm-hmm. had the problem that has been evident as something to deal with. And so we've had the resources, but also the pastoral need at, say, the Council of Trent to do things like reaffirm uh, transubstantiation. Right. No, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, Father, shifting shifting gears a little bit here, um, and I, I sent this to you in advance. You've had a chance to look at the piece, but there's a man named Brad Littlejohn. He's a Protestant scholar. He runs uh, an organization called the Davenant Trust, and the Davenant Trust um, bills itself as being focused on a, a, a um, uh, sort of a uh, resourcement for Protestant theology, um, pointing that Protestant theology is a far cry from the sort of like modern evangelical non-denominationalism that we see throughout America, especially today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going back to the the original reformers, little John himself is a Richard Hooker scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also John Calvin and uh, Peter Martyr Wrigley. Um, all of these guys who in little John and his colleagues views are sort of the foundational guys of yeah. the reformation and, uh, and really should be given higher priority in Protestant scholarship today. So um, little John is a serious scholar and I don't want to, don't want to malign anything that he writes here. Um, he's a serious scholar. I mean, I think he's, he's wrong on this issue for sure. Uh, but he has what I would call serious objections. Right. And when I say serious objections, I don't say that they're, they're right objections, but they're just, they're, they're not frivolous objections. Right. We can't just dispel them with a wave of the hand. D- Dominicans so should essay. love serious objections. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's, it's definitely a Thomistic principle too, father. Right. I mean, when you, when you read the Summa, I always appreciate how Thomas tries to frame his opponent's objections in the most serious way possible and strengthen them when they are deficient. And then he, and then he attacks them head on. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, so little John is a serious scholar. He has serious, uh, serious objections, I think. And in this essay, which I'm also linking in the show notes, 
Um, it's called the the real presence and the presence of reality in defense of Reformed sacramentology. Mm-hmm. He articulates what I think is a sort of different view of uh, the Protestant conception of the Eucharist um, when compared, especially to what most Protestants today believe. And his contention is that it is actually the Protestant reformers, and that's that's Hooker and that's Calvin and Verigli. Uh, it's the Protestant reformers who actually are trying to maintain uh, some semblance of creaturely integrity and insisting that God's uh, God's divine um, God's divine imminence um, permeates creation rather than you know supplants usurps destroys annihilates it, um, which I think is really interesting because we we often look at Protestants and it's very true of a lot of Protestants we look at Protestants today and we say they they are basically Zwinglians they hold to a merely symbolic view of the Eucharist right when they have their communion service. They don't even. They say it's nothing more than bread and wine. It's just that that bread and wine symbolizes something deeper, right? It symbolizes a, a unity of fellow believers at a common supper table. It symbolizes symbolizes Christ's sacrifice, but it actually it, there there is no sacrifice there. There's no unbloody sacrifice. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, there there is no real presence. Or no, there's there's not even a really a spiritual presence. Um, and so little John makes several of these, he sort of dispels several of these as sort of um, red herrings, right? This isn't what the reformers believe. This isn't what we believe, etc. But what he says, and this is where where he gets to the gist of his argument, is he says, in other words, the Catholic dogma at the time of the Reformation, forcefully asserted by the Council of Trent, was not the vague affirmation so beloved of modern incarnational sacramental-minded Christians that God was pleased to take ordinary ordinary creaturely material realities and grace-perfecting nature, make them the receptacles of his powerful presence and the vehicles of his grace. No, it was quite specifically the claim that after the consecration, the bread was no longer bread and the wine was no longer wine, that grace destroying nature, the presence of God had displaced the creaturely reality altogether and replaced it with a spiritual substance alone. All that remained was the appearance or accidents of bread, something physical stripped of any metaphysical weight. So you can probably summarize that better than I can, Father, but as I understand what he's saying, uh, he's saying that the, and he, he goes on to say what the reformers said about that, but he says the reformers actually wanted to preserve the creaturely realities because they said that God doesn't destroy the creaturely realities, but God works through them and makes himself present in the believer who receives the Eucharist, despite, uh, despite that Eucharist still being bread and wine. Um, and he's saying that Catholics say, uh, what Catholics say is actually an affront to God's creation because Catholics say, uh, when God transforms these into the body and blood, it destroys the creaturely realities that there are. There is no creature there anymore. It is just, it's just pure, pure divine imminence, essentially. Well, what do you make of that? So the, the first positive lesson that one can gain from this essay is one that I have to carefully treat in Eucharist class with the undergraduates, which is to get it out of my students' heads that there is one Protestant position that's essentially right. reduced the Eucharist to a symbol. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in this, we see in the the paper by Little John, uh, Luther had a Eucharistic teaching that on some points was actually very close to the Catholic position, although still different enough that it ends up having from a Catholic perspective, whether Thomistic or Tridentine or other, is still erroneous. Right. Consubstantiation. Mm -hmm. You have both substances on the altar. Luther wouldn't even want to say substance, but that's what he means ultimately. Right. Yeah. So. which we could call incarnational, we could, right? Um, Little John says the reformers, and um, he's dealing also with Hooker, an Anglican theologian that I don't know too well, right? Um, I think the presentation of Zwingli, I'm not, maybe I didn't fully grasp what he was arguing at, but I think it's fair to say that Zwingli does move to a pure symbol position. Right. And that this is indeed what's been most influential in um, American, more evangelical type of Christian thinking and preaching uh, among the Protestants in, a, in, the United, in the American tradition, which is now a global tradition through the various evangelical and Pentecostal communities, right? Right. So uh, little John ultimately, I think, is, as cl- is closer to John Calvin, okay? Calvin's position is subtle. The best analogy I can come up with, and somebody should write a book on this, the way Calvin thinks of the Eucharist and its effects is a, a lot, on, in some ways, very similar to the way St. Thomas Aquinas thinks of the other sacraments and how they give sanctifying grace. Okay. So Calvin, the reformers in general, it, but not Luther, 
but the reformers in general, Calvin and Swingley, refuse a corporeal presence of Christ's body and blood on the altar. And it's my understanding, and I've studied this with the help of Protestant scholars, and a very good book by a good Protestant theologian I've used on this is George Hunsinger, The Eucharist and Ecumenism. And it's a very good uh, summary of the key points of the reformers on issues like communion, Eucharistic presence, and so on, sacrifice, etc. Anyway, so they refuse the idea. So also for communion, for Calvin and Swingley, it's not that at the moment of communion, Christ's body is in me. Rather, for Calvin, but not for Zwingli, and not for the majority of more evangelical-type Protestants that I'm aware of today in the world, for Calvin, the sacramental bread and wine are the tr instrument, they're the means by which the Holy Spirit takes my soul into heaven for the moment and joins me in my soul to the body and blood and to the person of Christ, right? And this is a sanctifying, this is a powerful encounter, right? If I were not a Catholic and if I had to pick a Eucharistic Protestant theology, I think I would go with Calvin. Mm -hmm. Now, so notice that Calvin is still doesn't have any Eucharistic corporeal presence of Christ on the altar or on earth, right? He's rejected with all the reformers, the sacramental priesthood. And he has rejected violently, uh, starting with Luther, of course, but Calvin continues this, the Eucharistic sacrifice. So um, what little John is arguing is that this is a better account of the incarnational approach, a better a use of the incarnational approach, because now the bread and wine have an integrity. God respects the integrity of nature. He doesn't right, get rid right. of it. And it's the means through which he brings us into sanctification, right? Into communion with him. So here's the thing. Um, Little John, uh, I think somewhat like the Protestant reformers themselves, is reacting to a general account of Catholic theology that doesn't get into enough detail. When mm. Calvin talks about Aquinas' theology, it's not clear to me that he's actually read or understood Aquinas. What I've heard that about Calvin elsewhere, that Calvin hasn't actually no. really read Aquinas. Calvin refers to Aquinas. He might have read him. Uh -huh. The problem is Calvin okay. was not a trained theologian. He was a trained lawyer. Right? Mm. Calvin taught himself theology. Calvin, Which is impressive. Yeah. It, it, it's inc incredible how far he got. He loved the church fathers. He knew Augustine well. He didn't know him well enough, but okay. he knew him well. There are Eucharistic okay. passages in, in Augustine that contradict Calvin. Okay. Okay. So... Um, Calvin will often polemicize against Sorbonne theologians. The Sorbonne is the University mm -hmm. of Paris, where he studied law, right. which is where some of the leading Catholic theologians of his age are working, some of whom likely are representing Eucharistic theologies that have problems and that are not always very Thomistic, which was acceptable okay. at the time and still is. You don't have to be a Thomist to be yep. Catholic. Right? Yep. So the thing is, Little John has a similar issue. Notice in the even your paraphrase, which was a fair paraphrase of Little John, he talks about God getting rid of, setting aside, right, annihilating mm -hmm. bread and wine, only leaving accidents that have no metaphysical depth and replacing right. it with the substance. Well, a standard scholastic medieval and early modern disputed question in Catholic theology is, is it transubstantiation or is it annihilation where God scrunches and destroys with his divine hand right. the little tiny bread substance and sets it aside so that he can replace it with body and blood substance of the body and blood of Jesus? Or is it not destruction, but it's just sort of substitution, you know, let one thing cease to exist, bread substance, right, put right. something. So people like Aquinas and other theologians and Albert the Great uh, go on for pages to say, it can't be annihilation. It can't be substitution. And they go to great lengths to say, if you don't have a bread substance on the altar, that's the starting point for God to work a very powerful supernatural miraculous act where he doesn't replace anything. He has to take mm -hmm. something existing and he transforms it. He converts it. He changes it into uh, the, the, the term, the generic term that's present in Thomas and that's in the fathers and that Trent adopts is to convert. To convert one substance into another, 
that is essential to even get the the bodily corporeal presence of Christ uh, on mm-hmm. the altar. See, so it's unfair to say it's annihilation. Right. Little John still is getting at something, right? He's saying, "Look, you people have gotten in one way or another. You you moved bread substance aside. It's not incarnational enough." Right. Okay. My right. answer would be, "Excuse me, accidents have metaphysical depth." Mm, interesting. Okay. Accidents. We're dealing with color, taste, texture, quantity. Right. Accidents are not nothing in a sound metaphysical scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus's human act of loving me is an accident in his soul, right? Human beings are only perfected through accidents, through actions such as knowing and loving, and right? So we have to realize accidents have have terrible metaphysics, have great metaphysical status. It's true that they're not at the same level of substance, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing we have to keep in mind, in my opinion, is in theology, we can't sit here with just one principle that, that is the following. What's the most incarnational account I can come up with of the Eucharist? I can't sit here and say, well, the best way for me to show that God uses cre- creaturely realities to bless us is to say, oh, bread and bread substance stays on the altar, but that's the means through which I have contact with the body of Christ in heaven. A Catholic theologian has to say, no. Um, what is there one metaphysically coherent response that not only explains how I have a substance dwelling there, but also helps me to explain other things such as sacrifice? What I mean is this, mm-hmm. right? So little John wants essentially a Calvinist account where there's right. no change of substances. There's no new corporeal presence of Christ contra Luther huh, mm-hmm. on the altar. It's that through the bread I'm put into spiritual contact with Christ's glorified humanity in heaven, okay? Somewhat like we would say is happening in baptism. That's the contact I have with Christ in baptism. This is where I think Calvin is actually half right, except he's talking about the wrong sacrament, see? Yeah, exactly. So so here's the other issue is, you know, from antiquity forward, we've been talking about sacrifice. I mean, the fathers talk about this as if it's a given because it is to have a sacrifice. I have to have a body, a body, a victim on the altar. I can't get a body on the altar if I get rid of the priesthood and mm-hmm. I don't have transubstantiation because then I've reduced the contact with Christ's body to a contact that's strictly in my soul that is at the spiritual level. And of course, the Calvinist position fiercely rejects sacrifice, as does any Protestant position that is rooted in some of the reformers, in one of the reformers' mm. voices, right? And this is exactly what the Catholic position can accept. And this is exactly where the East, with its Greek language of metabole, of a change yep. of the, the being, the deep being of things, is in full agreement with us. The East has never denied or watered down Eucharistic sacrifice. And the Greek fathers, like John Chrysostom and others, and affirmed it. It's just that the West had had a chance to develop this theologically because of new questions being brought up. And, yeah. and so this is, the, this is the issue, right? Is As a theologian, I can't just say incarnational model, what's the best way to maximize that? No, I have to take into account these other factors and say, is there one theological explanation or are there more than one, but at least one that helps mm-hmm. me to keep all of this intact? Yeah. And that's how we ended up with transubstantiation. No transubstantiation, no sacrifice, no masses for the dead, no purification of the church through sacrifice, right. uh, no bodily contact with Christ's body and blood in communion, no tabernacles, no Eucharistic adoration. You would have to dismantle most of Catholic Eucharistic piety much of which is shared by the Eastern Orthodox and all of which, Mm -hmm. or most of which is shared by the Byzantines in order to arrive at the, what is in fact a Calvinist uh, position that's not as radical as as Swingley. Uh, I love Little John's article. It's it's a wonderful read, uh, but this is where I think we would need to go next is these questions. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So on, on the question though of the body, Another of his assertions is that uh, the metaphysics of the Catholic account ultimately fall apart because um, 
because of the sort of lack of spatial limitations on Christ's human body. And he quotes um, Peter Martyr Vermigli on this, who says, they, Catholics, fall into many absurdities and perplexities, for they hold that a body may be in infinite places at one and the same time. They claim that this is no problem, since if the body of Christ, since if the body of Christ is there, it is not in a quantitative manner. Here is a wonder. How can they have a body, a quantum, a truly, truly present, and yet not by way of quantity? Uh, and that's the end of the quote from uh, Brickley. Right. So how does the church respond to that? And, and when I became Catholic, one of my Anglican friends um, made this argument to me as well, yeah. that uh, there cannot be infinite extensions of uh, Christ. Otherwise, that violates the principle of his bodily integrity, that he was truly fully incarnate, fully man. And this is the problem with Luther's position of the ubiquity of Christ's body, which some Lutherans in the 16th century pick up, right? Because mm. Lutheran consubstantiation ultimately has to posit this, apparently, that uh, Christ's body takes on certain divine attributes such that it can be present in all in all places, right? And that's also a position that the Catholics, in fact, cannot accept because it's a Christological problem where you can't attribute what's properly divine to Christ's creaturely human nature, you know? Mm. Um, so, so maybe to clarify it for our listeners who, because this is a person, a figure who's known to the specialists and to yourself, but not to most uh, even learned, learned Catholics, Peter Martyr Vermigli is not St. Peter Martyr of Verona, right, of the 13th century, who was a Dominican right. martyr, uh, right. <laughs> actually an inquisitor. <laughs> and uh, so that's his first name that he took, I assume from his Catholic baptism. He's a Italian 16th century author who moved to Northern Europe. He fled to keep his uh, freedom of conscience and his religious freedom and remain a Protestant. And Vermigli is his last name, Italian, Vermigli. Um, and um, he wrote influential theological tracts as, as well, right? So Remigli says, this is absurd. We have a substance without quantity, right? So um, it's uh, William of Ockham was a 14th century Franciscan philosopher who we categorize as a nominalist, which means he rejected a number of key Catholic philosophical and theological ideas that were often commonly held uh, by the time of uh, that he came along in the 14th century. Um, Occam was one of the first to essentially fuse or make inseparable substance and quantity. Uh, to say corporeal substances always have to have quantity, they're inseparable from quantity. And this became a popular idea. It's later reproduced and developed by Rene Descartes, who lived after the reformers and probably after Vermigli. Uh, um, so the, the vision that comes from Occam is a nominalist vision where the diverse ways of realizing a perfection, substance to, to be on one's own, uh, to be an existing reality with a unity to it, like I'm a substance and you, Zach, are a substance. Mm -hmm. In the classical philosophical and theological traditions in both East and West, there's an analogical vision of reality that says, yes, there are diverse, diverse ways of realizing, of participating in this perfection. The Trinity is one substance, three persons that subsist in one communion of being, substance, life, and love, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Christ's human nature subsists, and his body and blood are substances, or we can have a share in that, that substance. You and I are substances, trees, etc. There's a realization of this hierarchy of being in the universe, all of which is a reflection of God's perfections, but in very different ways and in different, we might say, degrees of intensity. This right. applies to many things. It applies to wisdom, to being, to causality, right? This is all about sacramental causality. How is the priest a cause at the consecration of the change of the gifts? How is he participating in the work of forgiving sins in the confessional? So this is all rooted in an analogical vision of the cosmos and of God's providence, which Occam is taking apart with his uh, exceedingly excessively skeptical deconstructive philosophy called nominalism. Right. That's a major philosophical source for the great reformers of the 16th century. Martin Luther's teachers were nominalist theologians who were marked by Occam and other nominalist thinkers. And this directly influenced Luther's own rejection of some sacraments, such as the priesthood. Okay. Mm. 
because Luther ended up in a position where because of bad philosophical presuppositions, he could no longer say, how is it possible for God and the priest to forgive sins? It's one or the other. It's not right. a participating in God's work where I'm an active agent who I'm his servant, his instrument, the way I should be in the confessional, in the classical mm -hmm. Catholic view. A cousin to this idea is the reduction of substance metaphysics and substance theology where it can only be one thing. Now, corporeal substances have to be quantified, right? Uh, have oh, to always okay. have a quantity attached to them. And this, mm -hmm. I am going to presuppose, and I think it's a safe presupposition, because these philosophical presuppositions coming from nominalism are everywhere in 16th century Protestant thought. They're in Calvin. That's been shown mm -hmm. by the uh, the former Angelicum professor of philosophy, and he's now actually my bishop in Freiburg because he's a Swiss Dominican. His name is Charles Morero. Ecumenism and philosophy. It's based on his study of the sources in Luther and, and Calvin. So what do we have here? Nominalist philosophy implicitly at work, and I think it's the same in Vermigli. Vermigli's right in one sense. It's not natural for a corporeal, so material, material substance like you and me to be without quantity. The question is, is it possible in God's miraculous power for this to come about? And this is where I think I'm going to go back to the example of the incarnation. If we look at the incarnation, the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in one person in the Son of God, his human and divine nature, and we look at the many things that Christ did in the flesh and the way he rose and died and rose again, and the way he is active as the glorified high priest at the right hand of the Father, we can begin to see there are a lot of certain natural limitations on human creaturely realities that no longer apply to him. So I would say by analogy, certain things that the glorified Christ can do that would be impossible for any human being other than for the Son of God and his human nature. Some of this is also possible in the realm of the Eucharist. What's interesting is that the, the great scholastics realized it's not possible for Christ's body to, in the proper sense, be in two places at once. Mm -hmm. That is, if you think he's spatially on the altar, the way that Jesus in his humanity was spatially living in Palestine, in Israel, 2,000 years ago, you've got a problem. Because that kind of physical spatial presence, in, even in God's power, it's limited to one location, to one time. Right. And so the, the scholastics say Christ is spatially present in heaven, in the new creation, mm. period. But he is corporally, non-spatially present on the altar, in the tabernacle, in your mouth at communion, in your body as, as that host is being consumed. They are looking for a corporeal presence that's non-spatial, it's non-quantity. This is why in, in theology, I think we should not speak of the physical presence of Christ, because I think that implies mm. quantity, space, yeah. accidents that space, belong, right? Yeah. This is, it's for... corporeal. So I think what happens with Vermigli is, um, I'd have to study him more closely to give him a fuller response. But I think we've got some nominalist presuppositions of what's possible for substances, and maybe a loss of the sense of how does a sound Christology then impact the way we can conceive of the possibilities of the, the supernatural acts of God that happen in, in, in the Eucharist, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be sort of a short answer to, to Vermigli. But no, notice too, the, the Catholic presupposition here, the way that the Catholic theologians argue about there's a substantial corporeal non-quantitative presence, right? The starting point is, from the early days of the church forward, we've believed, by the way we venerate the species, by the way we receive communion, the way the ancient yeah. saints speak, that the body of Christ is on all these altars at once. He's in these different tabernacles. Therefore, there's a corporeal presence that's somehow escaping certain limitations of space and time. The theologian begins with that the way the ancient church and the saints and the great teachers of the faith from antiquity forward taught us to believe and practice the Eucharist. And now the theologian's job is to say, how does that make sense? Vermigli right, right. would force me to say, 
you know, the ancient saints, I mean, John Chrysostom and Augustine and Cyril of Jerusalem and Ignatius of Antioch, they got it, they all got they it got wrong. It wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Right. This is ultimately why I can't yeah. become a Protestant. There's various reasons, right? Is if I take the Protestant position of a Vermigli, I have to say on this major issue on the faith, the ancient church fathers got it wrong. And not only did they get it wrong, nobody noticed. Nobody came yeah. out and said, St. Ambrose, your explanation of the presence of Christ on the altar at Mass is erroneous. Not only was it not refuted, it was received and perpetuated, right? Right, right. And this is the problem. It, this is, we might call this lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praying, it marks the law of believing. The way we prayed consistently for centuries is a starting point to articulate our faith and to help theology explain what we believe. Yeah. Uh, that's a really, that's a very fitting response, I think, to, uh, to Vermigli's claims here, Father, and I, I appreciate your depth and your detail. I had a few other things for you, so, um, uh, but, but I, we're almost out of time. So instead, uh, I'll ask you just a, you know, for, for those who are listening to this podcast, um, maybe won't pick up the book, but are really intrigued by these ideas, um, but but often sort of get lost in the sort of headiness of it all, right? This is some pretty advanced things. We're di we're diving into Aristotelian metaphysics, and we're talking about uh, nominalism and William of Ockham, and uh, this stuff gets pretty detailed and pretty intense pretty quickly. Um, what about uh, on a more popular level? Um, you know, how what's your advice for someone who says I am realizing that I need to deepen my devotion to the Eucharist? How does one do that? So. Um... So I'm assuming, right, that they've got a, a regular prayer life, and that some of that involves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we can. I think we can assume yeah. that their regular prayer yeah. life and they're going to mass. You know, they're they're a they're a good Catholic. Right. So I think it's helpful to have um, uh, some kind of Eucharistic literature that's that's very accessible, that they can also then take into, say, the chapel, the Adoration Chapel, maybe take with them to mass yeah. to just before, just after mass, read a few lines, read a paragraph. Um, there are a few tools to do this. Um, for the ambitious ones, I would say, pick up an English translation of the commentary on the Gospel of John by St. Thomas Aquinas and start to read what he says on chapter six. There are parts that are going to be accessible to you. There are other parts less accessible that you can skip, right? Um, a textbook that is very accessible without dumbing down the faith without being simplistic, that I used to assign to my students, which is not that metaphysical, it's less philosophical, it's more biblical and narrative, is by the Cistercian monk from Dallas, a Hungarian Cistercian named Father Rock Koretsi. And I'll let you spell that in the chat box for the listeners, or maybe I can do it for you. Um, so sure. he's done several books of theology, and he... Um, um, uh, Father Coretzi is, is a very experienced teacher. In fact, I think he mostly taught high school. But he has a, a book called The Wedding Feast of the Lamb that I assigned for several years to my theology undergraduate students, which is very richly biblical and liturgical and patristic and has many quotes of the saints. And that it's maybe 180 pages. Uh, and that is a oh, wonderful wow, okay. resource they could use. There are, there are others... There are various other, um, uh, there are many saints who've written on this. Uh, I think reading, for example, the, the Catechesis on the Sacraments by St. Ambrose, it's only parts of book four that they can access for free on the internet. That would really be a, a wonderful resource for them. Um, and and uh, Or also maybe um, to read someone like the English Benedictine Anscar Vonier, and I'll spell that for you as well. He, yes, uh, please do. <laughs> so Vonier uh, was a, an abbot in Buckfast Abbey in Southwest England in the early 20th century and a beloved spiritual master who mostly preached retreats and published his retreats. And it's called A Key to the Doctrine of the, the Eucharist. So th those would be some resources for them. I did a couple of short videos on the Eucharist for my Dominican province that are on YouTube. One is on transubstantiation and the other one is on sacrifice. They're about five minutes long. 
and there I really try to speak to uh, every man, you know, uh, about some of the basics in a, in a very simple language. Um, so OP West is the YouTube channel. So I'll spell that for you too. That's the, that's the short abbreviation for um, Order of Preachers Western Province, OP West. They have a YouTube channel where they put some short uh, catechetical videos by various friars of my province. And I did two short ones on the Eucharist, yeah. Great. I'm going to link all those in the show notes to my listeners and viewers who want to dive into some of those resources. Uh, Father Blankenhorn, thank you so much for this book that you've written, Bread from Heaven, an introduction to the theology of the Eucharist. I'll hold it up one more time. Uh, to any of my listeners or viewers, I highly encourage you to get this book. It really is it really is pretty accessible, um, but, uh, but also I think any of these resources that uh, Father mentioned would be, would be great as well. Um, like I said, the 100th, 100th, 100th episode of Creedle and really wanted to do something important, and there's nothing more important than the source and the summit of the Christian life. So, Father, thank you so much for your work for the church, for, uh, for your dedication, for your, uh, your tireless efforts in, in engaging in some of the most important ideas that we have to reflect on as Catholics. Um, and God bless you uh, in your time in Switzerland. Thank you, Zach. It's been a great hour with you, and God bless you and your work on the, on the wonderful path podcasts you've been, been doing and uh, continue to do for the glory of God. Thank you so much, Father. To my listeners and viewers, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. If you have a question for Father, you can email me. I'd be happy to pass it along to him. My email is Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. Until next time, God bless you.